Redemption was accomplished for his people. The Son of God dying in our place, our sins upon his shoulders. We thank you that his perfect life and righteousness have been credited to us who believe. Lord, our God, that we who are by nature children of Adam have become children of the living God, united to Jesus Christ our Savior, made anew in him. O Lord, our God, what depths of riches and of grace this is that has been extended unto us. O Lord, we praise and adore you uh, this day. Lord, our God, we do pray that you would especially bless the preaching of the word of God throughout this country and throughout this world. O Lord, would you cause your word to go forth with power, as Paul said, to run quickly and to be glorified. O Lord, might many receive this gospel news and believe upon this Savior, turning from their sins in faith, looking to Jesus Christ and experiencing full and free salvation in him. Lord, we desire that you would build up your church. We long to see your churches full, that all your chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. Lord, we uh, desire that more and more might be brought uh, to faith in Christ. Oh Lord, would the word of God go forth with power in our own nation? our own nation that seems increasingly to be set uh, to, or, or, or to uh, embrace a, a secular mindset, Lord, a set of values that is not according to your word. Lord, our God, we pray that you would open people's eyes to their desperate state, that they might look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Lord, our God, bless churches. There are so many churches that have turned away from preaching of the truth of your word. O oh Lord, our God, would you cause such churches to turn back, to turn back again to the Holy Scriptures, or to proclaim your truth, Lord, and uh, we pray that many might be saved. Lord, we pray, though, not only for our own nation, but for all the nations of the world. We acknowledge, O oh God in heaven, that we have a truly Christian family, brothers and sisters in Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. We thank you that the gospel is going forth into all lands. We pray, Lord, that you would bless your church wherever it goes. Lord, make disciples of Christ, we earnestly pray. Lord, we thank you last week that we were able to hear from uh, Ethan Happy and uh, his family, Lord, and we lift them up before you. We pray, O oh God, that they would raise the support that needs to be raised and that they would be able to return to India and, Lord, be blessed in the uh, proclamation of your truth in that land. We pray especially that people would be uh, pulled out of the despair, O oh Lord, and uh, the tyranny of uh, a lifestyle of prostitution, Lord, and be brought into the light of the gospel. Use their efforts to that end, we pray. Lord, we I do pray for um, other missionaries that we know, those that we support as a church. We lift up each one of them, Jody Collins and her labors in Mexico, the Halberts. And Lord, we pray that they indeed would uh, be planted in Honduras. And Lord, that that, uh, that that ministry in Honduras might flourish through having the Halberts arrive there. Father in heaven, we uh, 
uh, do continue to lift up the work of Grace Presbyterian Church in Worcester, and we praise you, Lord, for that work. Uh, we thank you also, O, o living God, for uh, the Melitiotises and their labors uh, in Greece. Lord, we pray that you would bless uh, uh, that work, O oh God, both the work in the church and also the work among the refugees. Living God, we pray for uh, the work of the Powells, O oh Lord, as they seek to translate the scriptures to a people that have never had it in their own uh, language and bring gospel truth to that uh, people group. Lord, would you bless those labors also? Father in heaven, we lift up uh, the English as a second language ministry to begin in just nine days from now. Oh Lord, would you bring students, students from our own area who need to learn English, Lord. Bring them into the doors of this church, oh Lord. Might these uh, classes have people to instruct and might relationships be formed. And Lord, it is our ultimate desire that some would come to know Jesus Christ through this ministry. Lord, be with the Larkins, even as Sean Larkin has recently had a knee replacement surgery, continues to be in pain. Father, would you bring healing to his knee? We thank you for the surgery and uh, give grace to Sean and to Karen both, Lord, to, uh, uh, to, to be upheld by your spirit through this time of recovery. Uh, Lord in heaven, we uh, thank you as well for the birth of little Lily Sosa, uh, Lord, you have answered prayers that we have lifted up now for many months as Carol has had this pregnancy and you've brought this child safely into the world. Uh, we thank you for this gift of new life. We pray that Lily from a young age would know and love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of her heart. We pray, O oh God, that by your spirit you would give grace to uh, uh, both to Carol and to Ricardo uh, to raise this little one in the ways of the Lord. Give them wisdom as parents. And so, O oh Lord, our God, we pray for all the various uh, families of this church. We uh, do pray for husbands and wives, that they would love one another uh, in the Lord, uh, that they would serve one another. Uh, gracious God, we pray that you would give wisdom to parents. We pray, Lord, that children would grow up uh, to know and to embrace the gospel and to live for Jesus Christ from a young age. Lord, our God, we pray for each one of us in our spheres of influence that we would live as a light for Jesus Christ in the midst of this dark world. Oh, help us. Be our help, we pray. We need you. And for even for the many uh, particular requests that have not been mentioned specifically, Oh, Lord, our God in heaven, you know each one of us in our deepest needs. Would you draw near to your needy people, we pray, and be our help and our strength. For we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing uh, once again. Uh, our hymn is going to be number five, and so it's, uh, remember in our new Trinity Psalter hymnal, the first 150 selections are the 150 psalms. So we're actually going to be singing Psalm 5 together in its entirety. Uh, in this psalm, the psalmist expresses complete dependence upon God amidst many afflictions in this world. And indeed, even as many turn against the Lord, he prays that he would be faithful to the Lord and find the Lord to be his refuge. Uh, these words will uh, be especially relevant in the passage that we consider out of the book of Revelation today. So might we express 
uh, our dependence on God. Hear my words, O Lord my God. Listen to my sighs and groans. Psalm 5 in our Trinity Psalter hymnals. Let's stand to sing.
seated. Uh, please open uh, with me now uh, in the scriptures to the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. Uh, we come today to Revelation chapter 13, and our scripture text is Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. Let us now uh, hear uh, the living word of uh, the living God. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to ta captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This ends this word from the living God. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, uh, we do love your word. Your, Lord, your word brings light, light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank you most of all that it is your word that reveals for us salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that even as we are aware today of the dangers of this beast, that we might have fresh cause to fly to our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, every ruler has his or her right-hand man. In chapter 12, we read of the one who is described elsewhere in scriptures as the ruler of this world, the adversary against God and against his church. It was the dragon. 
And we made the point uh, in the last couple of weeks out of Revelation chapter 12 that Revelation 12 gives us a grand overview, a narrative of what is happening in this world in the most cosmic of conflicts. The conflict against the dragon, Satan, and against that child who was brought into the world uh, by the living God, even the Christ child who has won victory over the dragon. In that cosmic conflict, the Lord Jesus wins. But our eyes were opened, were they not, to that continued battle which the dragon fights against not only Christ, but against the church of Jesus Christ. His battle against the Lord's people. Well, in this battle, the dragon, Satan, does indeed have his right-hand men, his henchmen, as it were, his agents in the midst of this world. And they are described for us, actually, in Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, in verse 1, we read there of a beast who is rising out of the sea. And then in verse 11, a second beast, another beast, rising out of the earth. And so this week, we're going to consider the first of these beasts, the Satan's henchmen in this world, the beast out of the sea. Next week, Lord willing, uh, the beast out of uh, the earth. Uh, well, we're going to consider this first beast, the beast out of the sea, under, uh, a couple, or, uh, under three different headings today. First of all, uh, we're going to consider the beast's identity. Who is this beast? The beast's identity in verses 1 and 2. Uh, secondly, uh, we are going to consider the beast's features in verses 3 through the first part of verse 8. The beast's features. And then lastly, from the last half of verse 8 down through verse 10, we will consider the beast's limits. The beast's limits. The beast's identity, his features, and then his limits. Well, first of all, the beast's identity. And the first thing to notice is that this beast who is described in Revelation 13.1 is a beast who arises out of the sea. Now, in the ancient world, the sea was often associated with evil. Its waters are chaotic, mysterious, uncontrollable. Ships that often went out into the waters were frequently destroyed, and shipwreck was made of them. So to arise out of the sea in its ancient context was uh, to arise out of evil. It symbolized that which was evil. And you'll notice as well that the beast here has a very similar description to the dragon in chapter 12 and verse 3. And this shouldn't surprise us because, as it says here in verse 2, the beast is given power, notice the last half of verse 2, to it, to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne in great authority. So in other words, out of chapter 12, we saw the kind of usurped authority that Satan exercises in this word. It's world. It's not an ultimate authority. God is sovereign over all things. But nonetheless, Satan, the great adversary, tries to take captive the souls of men and exercise his sinister influences in this world. And here it is saying that this dragon Satan has given to the beast 
to work as its agent in the world, a kind of power and throne and great authority. And so the beast here, this first beast out of the sea, looks a lot like the dragon. You'll notice that like the dragon, it has horns and heads and diadems on those. Uh, on those. Uh, the ten horns, like those of Satan, represent extraordinary might and power. Uh, seven heads represent uh, many manifestations. Okay, Seven heads, meaning it, it appears in different places at different times. My own mind went to that old arcade game. Do you remember that where you'd have a, a hammer and you'd be out in this thing and suddenly those things would pop up and as soon as you try to knock it down in one area, it would pop up somewhere else. And I think that's the image that's, that's being given here, okay? Okay? Uh, of, uh, seven heads appearing in, as it were, different places, different manifestations. Okay? Various appearances of this beast. But then this beast has... Ten diadems, that is a kind of acknowledged rule and authority over much of this world. And we read of that later in verse 7, okay? Authority was given this beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, a kind of authority in this sinful world. But then as well, it's described as having blasphemous names on its head. We're going to see this in, later in today's sermon, that this beast is going to receive people's worship, and it will demand worship of the people. And so that's the description. It looks like the dragon it receives, as it were, uh, a certain kind of authority and rule. It's the agent of Satan in this world. But then, the description that is given in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, should help us further identify exactly what this beast is. Okay? It's going to give a description. Now, you know, I never cease to be amazed at how powerful certain symbols are and how easily recognizable they are. So, uh, you know, long before Evie ever is able to read, we can be driving down uh, the road in the car, and suddenly you see these yellow arches that kind of look like an M. She can't read anything now, mind you, but she says, McDonald's. Can we go to McDonald's? Or, she's really good, I tell you, you can also see a letter C that looks, it's red, and it has certain things that make it kind of look like a chicken. Chick-fil-A. Can we please go to Chick-fil-A? You represent, you recognize certain symbols, right? Well, actually, what we are given in the description of this beast in verse 2 are symbols which would have been very recognizable to first century Christians, it says there that the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet was like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And immediately, uh, the one who would have been steeped in their Old Testament would have recognized all of these figures, that the reference is to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel saw four great beasts coming up out of the sea. The first of those beasts was like a lion. The second was like a bear. 
The third was like a leopard. And then a fourth was different than the others, yet with ten horns. Okay, so just like my little daughter recognizing McDonald's golden arches, we can look at this description and say, Aha, I've seen this before. These are those beasts described in the book of Daniel. Now, very helpfully, the book of Daniel interprets what those beasts are. Daniel 7 and verse 17 says that these four beasts represented four kings who shall arise out of the earth. They were four distinct empires, one rising after another on the world stage, each of them exercising a kind of dominion and persecuting uh, the people of God. Now, Daniel's vision has a lot more to say than that. But nonetheless, those four beasts each were different kings or rulers representing different empires. So now we come to Revelation 13, and what we see is this beast is like a, a, a conglomerate. It's all put together, mashed together. Daniel's separate beast of Daniel uh, chapter 7. It's all of Daniel's beasts sort of rolled into one. And so now each of these distinct empires that were arising on the world stage are now together represented in this one beast. And that helps us understand who this beast really is. This beast represents, to quote William Hendrickson, one commentator, the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all nations and governments of the world throughout history. The persecuting power of Satan embodied in all nations and governments of the world throughout history. Or, to quote Rick Phillips, he's saying the same thing in different words, it is the entirety of violent earthly empires that oppose Christ's kingdom and people. The entirety of violent earthly empires that oppose Christ's kingdom and people. What we are talking about here when we talk about the beast is a kind of tyrannical political power, government, governmental force, that is set in opposition to God. And so does this refer to Rome in the first century? It absolutely does, but not just Rome. It refers from before Rome to Babylon and Persia and Greece. And it refers to many kingdoms that have arisen since Rome. It refers to those in the 16th century, controlled by the papacy that violently suppressed the Reformation. It refers to the French Revolution of the 18th century. It refers more recently to Nazism and communist states and Islamic states which have made absolute claims upon the people and sought to stamp out true devotion to God in their midst. That's what this beast represents. Now you might ask at this point, well, how do we connect this with what Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 13 about human government? Okay, Romans 13 and verse 1. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, And what that is saying is simply this, is that, first of all, that government is, human government, civil government, is God's institution. Absolutely. Not all government is evil simply by being government. Okay? But government is to serve the ends for which God has ordained it. And it is true that government easily can become the agent of Satan as it stops pursuing its God-ordained purposes, and it easily can become idolatrous in its activity. Now, does this mean that suddenly we are to have no relation to government? No, Paul says, submit to the government authorities that are over us. But at the same time, we are to acknowledge, as we're going to see as we make our way through this sermon, that our ultimate allegiance is not to any government, but to the living God. We obey God rather than man. And when government makes idolatrous claims upon our lives, we are to have an allegiance to God himself. But that such governments which battle against Christ and against the church will arise in this world is evident from this first beast. That's what it represents. Now, when does this, when do, when does this beast arise? Well, it describes in uh, verse 5 that it exercises authority for 42 months. Ah, do you remember? We've seen this so many times recently. Right, 42 months, 1,260 days. Uh, it's the same period of time, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. It's all referring to the same amount. And every time I'm saying, it refers to that period between the first and the second comings of Christ. It's half of seven, the perfect number. And it's saying that this period is, a limited, of, is of limited duration. That our present age is an age in which this beast is operative. And so let us be aware. But its time is limited. So, you might ask this question then, is the beast of Revelation 13, then, is this the Antichrist? Now, that's sometimes how it has been interpreted, even by some of our Puritan forebears. And my answer to that question would be a kind of yes and no. Okay, First John chapter 2 and verse 18 says to us something about the Antichrist. First John 2 and verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And I think that verse helpfully says that there will be a final figure at the end of the age, the Antichrist, described in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 as the man of lawlessness. That figure is going to rise up in particular opposition against Christ and against his church. And yet, that figure will have many forebearers throughout history, who are characterized by blasphemous powers in opposition to Jesus Christ. What John describes as, even now, many antichrists have come. And what I want to say is that this beast 
described in Revelation 13, 1 through 10, is a beast that represents many appearances of Antichrist throughout church history. Now, I believe that there will be a final figure as well. But I don't think we can just merely say that this beast only represents that final figure, but rather it's one who throughout this present age, through the activity of political powers and civil government, opposes Jesus Christ and the ways of his church. The beast's identity in verses 1 and 2. This moves us on now to the beast's features. The beast's features in verses 3 through the first part of verse 8. And what I want to do here is to point out three particular things that we are told about this beast. Three particular things. And the first of those is that this beast continually arises. This beast continually arises. We see this in verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. It kind of has you scratching your head. What is this mortal wound that has been healed? Well, some uh, think that this refers specifically to the Roman emperor Nero, committed suicide in AD 68, but then various legends had it that he hadn't died, but that he would soon return to claim the empire. Uh, I don't think that that interpretation is correct at all. It seems highly unlikely that verse 3 would refer to a kind of legend that was out there that has no basis in, in reality. Nero really did die. Well, how do we interpret this then? Well, I think a more likely interpretation is that this mortal blow refers to the death blow that is given to Satan and to this world's kingdom by Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, That Christ is the one who has crushed Satan's head, delivered a mortal wound. But nonetheless, though this beast receives a mortal wound, it keeps rising throughout this age with power to wage war against the church. So under this view... Uh, we would say that the beast's wound is not ultimately healed, okay, its days are numbered, but it is healed to the extent that his rage continues with fierceness throughout this present age. I guess that's a possibility as well. Or another interpretation uh, would be this, that this mortal wound uh, simply refers to the way that that that. When a, when a particular government, which is a persecutor of God's people, is brought down, does Christian persecution cease at that moment? And the answer is no, right? I mean, when the Roman Empire finally failed, or when the French Revolution did not prove to be a success, or when Soviet Russia fell, did that then mean the end of ungodly government and the persecution of Christians? And the answer very clearly is no. That it seems that there's a kind of persistence to this beast. The martyrs continue to cry out in the words of Revelation 6, do they not? How long, O Lord? 
And we seem to rejoice for a time when persecuting powers cease, but then another tyranny, just as bad as the first, arises in its place, and persecution continues. And here we are, some 2,000 years after John wrote, first wrote these words, and this persecution of civil powers against the work of God in this world continues as strong as it ever has. Okay? It delivers, it receives a kind of mortal wound, but yet it continues uh, to rise up. And it reminds us that ultimate relief will not be brought until Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, appears in glory on the clouds of heaven to bring this world under its final judgment. Then and only then will the powers of this beast and of the dragon finally be cut off. So that's the first thing, that the beast continually arises. Well, the second feature of this beast is this, that the beast demands false worship. The beast demands false worship. It is, it's just a simple fact of history that tyrannical rulers often become extremely popular and they elicit and even demand a kind of absolute allegiance and worship from their own people. And there's a couple sides to this coin. On the one hand, people tend to give absolute devotion to the state. And on the other hand, the state tends to demand absolute devotion from the people. And we see that tendency at work throughout human history. And that's what's spoken about here. So first of all, people tend to give absolute devotion to the state. You can look with me at verse 3. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And then verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. That is, their absolute allegiance to the state was actually a kind of worship of Satan. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And then we move on later to verse, uh, uh, to verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. You know, you and I are created. We're hardwired, as it were, to worship. Each of us will worship something. And if we don't worship the true and the living God, we will worship something else. And here it is saying that one of the chief places that such worship and devotion is given to is to the civil powers. I mean... I wonder what kind of images were running through your own mind as we read some of these things. You know, you think of some of the, the nationalistic fervor of military parades, of crowds saying, Heil Hitler, whole crowds of them. I say to you, beware placing all of your confidence and hope in any a particular political cause or per political uh, figure. Dear friends, we ought not to be found placing our absolute allegiance, our chief devotion, to any kind of civil uh, leader. A political victory should not give us the greatest joy. A political defeat should not lead you into the depths of despair. Our chief allegiance ought to be 
uh, to the Lord. Do you know that you have far more in common with a Christian who is a Chinese Christian or a Saudi Christian? They are your brother and sister in Christ, much more even than an American who is not a Christian. Friends, we need to beware of this kind of dangerous idolatry of the state. Ultimately, the government is not the savior of this nation. It's not the savior of the world. We ought not to put our hope, our chief aim in life, in any kind of governmental policy or position, but rather in the living God. People tend to give absolute devotion to the state. But as well, the state tends to demand absolute devotion from the people. Verses 5 and 6, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. There is a picture of the beast, a civil government, ascribing to itself and to other things that worship which belongs to God alone. It's not afraid to put down true religion in order to build itself up. You know, I'm thinking even of of the book of Acts. Do you remember in the book of Acts how Herod stood before those crowds delivering a speech, vast multitude in front of him, and they cried out, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And what did Herod do? Herod believed them. He believed what was said. And then he died on the spot under the judgment of God, for believing that. Well, dear friends, government has not stopped saying this is the voice of God and not of a man. Whether you're in North Korea, which demands a religious worship, nothing less than a religious worship of the ruling political party and of their, of their leader in that nation. Whether you go through countless numbers of countries where all kinds of political dissent is quieted, where you have to follow the party line, you have to believe every word that comes from uh, the government. No dissent is allowed of any kind or else you are punished for it. There's a tendency of leaders to become power hungry, to engage in empire building, even at the expense of others. Friends, it's even true in Western-style democracy. Okay, Political leaders that demand a kind of absolute allegiance to all who would follow them, demonizing everyone who would even mention a word that is opposed to what they say. And friends, there's a tendency as well of government to become bigger and bigger and to take greater and greater control, to develop a kind of ideology that all of the people are to believe in, to, as it were, toe the the party line. I mean, in our own nation even, increasingly there are certain secular goals of our own government to get everybody thinking the same way, towing the party line, as it were. The almighty state becomes the answer to all of society's woes. Dear friends, there's a role for government, as I said earlier, 
and exactly where certain lines are to be drawn, which policies are wisest and not. Okay, I'm not drawing all of those lines here today. But I am saying we need to beware anything which places all of our hope or all of our allegiance okay, in any kind of, of civil government, and especially when it conflicts with the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being fed an ideology in our day that we are told we have to buy into, absolutely, that we have to believe in all of its parts. Friends, it is a kind of worshiping, ultimately, of the state. One writer has said this way. He has said that when the state seeks to be God, it does not become divine, but it becomes demonic. That when the state seeks to be God, it does not become divine, but it becomes demonic. Government has a place. And ultimately, it is to be in service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are to seek to influence government for good, absolutely. But I can say, beware, beware of any tendency to give our worship or absolute allegiance to any human government. It will often demand it. It will often make such claims upon our lives And we dare not give it for our ultimate allegiance is to the living God alone. The beast demands a kind of false worship. But the third feature of this beast is that the beast persecutes God's people. The beast persecutes God's people. We see this in verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Um, Dr. Uh, Todd Johnson, who is a professor of global Christianity and mission at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, uh, recently uh, wrote a post that had these statistics. He says this, that there are now more than 70 million Christians who have been martyred over the last two millennia. More than half of those 70 million died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. Is Revelation relevant to today? It absolutely is. And even in our, the 21st century, 2001, the first decade of the 21st century, one million Christians martyred. The second decade of the 21st century, 900,000 Christians martyred for the faith. And why is that? Why especially do so many Christians suffer at the hands of ungodly and unjust governments? Well, it's for the same reason that they often did in ancient Rome. It was because that Rome demanded of them, of these Christians, that they say, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians would not say that, but would say, Christ is Lord. And that same conflict continues even today. The allegiance which Christians are to give is ultimately an allegiance to God. We are to believe what the Lord says in his word. We are to 
Obey what the Lord says we should obey. Our conduct should be according to the Lord's standards. And where any state, out of personal interest, or any interest whatsoever, says that you need to do that which, 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 the, which the Lord says you ought not, our allegiance is to him. Christ Jesus is Lord alone. And friends, that will cause some Christians to suffer and to die. Even today, there are Christians who are going to suffer and die because they are saying Christ Jesus is Lord alone. Government wants to use religion to its own ends. But friends, our only God and King is the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this happens in, even in the Western world, okay? Again, it's, your life is in jeopardy in many Islamic states, many uh, 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 dictatorships that are found throughout the world uh, today. If you are a Christian and you say Christ alone is Lord, your own life is going to be in jeopardy. Not so much in uh, Western uh, democracy, but increasingly in our age, there is a pressure that is put on citizens of a nation to conform to a kind of secular ideology. And the government seeks to do this by means of education, by means of policies which curtail Christian liberty, by trying to designate Christian truth as hate speech. And friends, this is where those things happen. It is the influence of the beast in this world. And our allegiance is to the living God alone. Okay? I mean, to give one example out of many things that I could give. I just read this a couple of days ago. Uh, our state university, University of Massachusetts, has just declared in the game, very intentionally, in the game that is being played against a Christian university, Liberty University, that they've declared that that day is going to be Pride Day at UMass. A state-run school. And again, I mean, that is it's a direct affront against what uh, what, uh, what, what, what Christians believe to be the truth of the living God. And dear friends, what I'm saying, in times like this, in which the, the day and age in which we live, friends, we need to be loyal to the living God. We need to be loyal to his truth, no matter what comes uh, our way. The beast, uh, the beast features. Well, third thing that I want us to see, and I trust by this we'll find some encouragement, and that is the beast's limits. We've spoken much of this beast out of the sea, of who he is, of what he's like. But now, lastly, I want us to see a couple of things about the beast's limits. And even in this dire chapter, there are a couple things which should bring us great encouragement. And the first of them is this. It is that God remains sovereign over the beast. God remains sovereign over the beast. And we find this, friends, in a couple of ways. First of all, in the language of given that is used throughout this. Now, in verse uh, 2 and then in verse 4, it speaks of the dragon giving the beast some power. 
But then when you go down to verse 7, it is clear that it's not the dragon, but it's the living God who gives this beast, who gives this beast certain powers. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Who's allowing that? Well, it's the Lord. The beast can do nothing outside of the Lord's sovereign power. And even what the dragon allows the beast to do, we saw in chapter 12 that the dragon can do nothing outside of the Lord's uh, sovereign uh, power. The Lord is still in control. And then it's said that he exercises this authority for 42 months. For 42 months. Okay? Uh, in verse 5. And we saw earlier that that refers to his designated period of time. And the point is, is that this tyrannical activity of the beast is coming to an end. It's coming to an end. The period is going to end. The beast rages. But only as long as God ordains and no longer than that. Christ will. Christ will return. The beast, uh, the beast uh, tyranny is going to end at the return of Jesus. And it's going to be at exactly the time when the Lord ordains. The Lord is sovereign even over the beast. But the second thing is this. The second means of encouragement is this. The limit, second limit of the beast is that God's people remain absolutely secure. What good news that is. God's people remain absolutely secure. Verse 8. And all, did you notice this? All who dwell on earth will worship this beast. Everyone except who? Whose name has not been, or everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This beast is powerful, but there are some who will not worship it. And who are those? They are those, first of all, whom God has chosen from eternity, who he had elected, written their names before the foundation of the world in the book of life, loved and chosen by God, and then not only chosen by him, but then redeemed by the blood of the lamb, the lamb who was slain. So all of those loved from eternity by God, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, covered in his blood and righteousness, are not going to worship this beast. But we are, dear friends, safe and secure in the arms of the Lord Jesus. And friends, that gives us extraordinary comfort amidst this dark world. Romans 8 is such a wonderful commentary on this. At the end of Romans 8, it says, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, even that nakedness, danger, sword, brought on by this beast out of the sea? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No is the answer. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even a beast out of the sea, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are ultimately secure in him. 
And so can I just give you a final exhortation based out of this text? Because God remains sovereign over the beast and God's remain in God's people remain absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. My final exhortation is this, dear friends, brothers and sisters, let you and I let us be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. But let us never, never cave to the beast's demands. Let us be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake, but let us never cave to the beast's demands. And that's what verse 10 is saying. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. Anyone to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Through this age, you are going to suffer. Some of you will be captive. Some of you will be slain with the sword. But what are you to do? Verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's what the Lord says. Endure. Be faithful to me. Serve your community. Serve the world around you. But dear friends, when the allegiance of this world differs with your allegiance to Jesus Christ, here is a call for endurance and for faith. You're on the winning side. And with this, I'll close. But one of the best illustrations of all of this, I think, comes in Daniel chapter 3. In the Old Testament, the whole book of Daniel, in one sense, is a commentary on Revelation 13. But Daniel chapter 3, you might remember the story. Daniel had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And one day they were brought out along with everybody else. And the king said, I'm going to set up a golden image. And I'm going to use religion for the purposes of the state to unify the people. And when this image is shown, and the music begins to play, everybody at once is going to bow down to the image. Seems like a small thing, right? Just bow down when you're told to bow down. But what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? Essentially, they said, we will not bow to the beast. (laughs) Our allegiance is to the living God. We belong to him. So the image was shown. The music began to play. Everybody bowed, but those three friends did not. And friends, they had to suffer for it. They were then taken and thrown into a fiery furnace. And they were thrown into that fiery furnace that was heated Much hotter than it was before. Do you remember that? Much hotter. They were thrown there to suffer and to die a cruel death. But the Lord saw their faithfulness. And he preserved them. Even a fourth one walked amongst them. None other than the Lord Jesus in that furnace with them. Every step of the way. Now that's not a promise, dear friends, that some Christians, namely... uh, that namely uh, uh, 70 million Christians won't die for the faith. But it does mean that our Lord Jesus Christ is with us in the midst of this suffering. And that death does not have the final word, but death is merely the entrance to glory. Let's be Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes in our present age, worshiping and serving the Lord alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word out of the scriptures. We pray, O living God, that you would bless us to offer obedience to you. 
Lord, we pray that we as Christians would not be caught up in the political fervor of our day, either from the right or from the left. We pray that we would not be caught up in a kind of nationalism that forgets that you are the living God. We pray that we would not be caught up in a kind of statism that pretends that government is the answer to every question that we have. O Lord, our God in heaven, might we be those who are found on the side of Jesus Christ above all else. And Lord, when days of persecution come at the hands of ungodly governments, help us to remember that such days are to be expected because there is a beast who serves the dragon that has been allowed by the sovereign God to persecute the people of God for a time. Help us to remember this, O Lord. But even as we remember this, Grant, O God, that we would be faithful to you who has won the victory. Give us faithfulness in small things, O Lord. Help us to be supremely, or help us to worship you supremely and to glorify your name above all else. O Lord, our God, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together now in response. It's hymn number 516. Uh, This is a hymn that we learned together. Actually, it's probably been a couple years since we sang it. But this is one of the hymns that was written uh, by the pastor James Montgomery Boyce just before he went to be with the Lord uh, some 23 years ago. And it's a hymn called Hallelujah. And it's based on the words out of Romans 8 that we just read together. And it speaks of the security that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what comes our way. Let us rejoice in these words, hymn number 516, and we'll stand to sing.
benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.